0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts, stocks tracking, interactive charts, and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Wall Street rallies from its Omicron sell-off as the Dow jumps more than 600 points, but futures dip ahead of today's November jobs report. Crew prices gain as OPEC Plus says they'll consider cutting supplies ahead of schedule if the Omicron variant dents demand. This after sticking to plans to add 400,000 barrels a day next month.
1: Chinese ride hailing company Didi announces it plans to delist from the New York Stock Exchange and list in Hong Kong. China's services sector expands at a slower pace in November, hit by increasing inflationary pressures and COVID clusters.
2: And the EU says Omicron will be responsible for over half of all COVID infections within months. That scores test positive for the variant after a Christmas party in Oslo, and Germany seeks compulsory jabs.
1: Eine allgemeine A general vaccination mandate should be decided by the parliament. We have asked the Ethics Commission to work on a recommendation and the general vaccination mandate could start in February 2022. It's been a volatile old trading week as investors have uh, taken stock of Omicron, the new variant, but also a hawkish tilt from the Fed around the interest rate story. J. Powell parking the use of transitory around inflation, just giving us a sense that they're going to be more targeted around these price pressures. But uh, you've got to say at this stage, investors questioning the, jo- the growth story if we do get some negative commentary from scientists in coming weeks about the impact of the variant and what that's been a very choppy trade. We've been down, we've been up, we've been down and then back up again on these markets. In session yesterday, it was a day back in the green. You can see the Dow leading the charge. 600 plus points to the upside, 1.8% pop. Uh, So far, what we've had now has been the slow grind over a number of weeks to the downside. And we've taken about 5% off some of those higher ranges. So we've just reversed off those record levels. But uh, it was a session. Boeing was one of the big contributors there. Elsewhere across the border, Alphabet, one of the big contributors to the likes of the S&P 500, the market popping 1.4%. You got to ask about what the contribution would have been from Apple if we'd seen a better performance in that stock. Don't forget, early in the session yesterday, we were talking about the impact on demand from supply chain bottlenecks. So that was one of the weaker components for the market. So perhaps we would have had it in a stronger picture if Apple, one of the big name stocks, had been a better contributor in session. But it was certainly a calmer session to the upside that played out. Worth noting, we have seen that move in the VIX, the volatility gauge. It has leapt towards uh, the, the levels we've not really seen since the start of the pandemic. So that's the first uh, real elevated level we've seen in the fear gauge let's just peel away from the equity markets and take you to treasuries because there's also been a lot of movement here the flattening of the yield curve very specifically is what we've been talking about the rise in the short end, the lowering at the log end and as a result investors just trying to gauge what the action from central banks will be at this stage let's take a look at the dollar this yield story has meant dollar has been king and you can see morning session uh, sterling euro taking a back foot here versus the greenback slightly down in session dollar also supported versus the japanese yen and over the course of the week, this is what it's felt like. It's probably felt like there's been lots of gyrations around this Omicron we've effectively seen. Uh, Various different news flow of it uh, filtering through. The big one, of course, for US markets was the first confirmed case in the United States, but uh, we had other commentary too from Moderna suggesting that vaccines may have to be tweaked. We were picking up on every little bit of commentary around the transmissibility of the variant, and you can see the gyrations here. But in the mix too, you saw, of course, uh, a lot of concerns about what j Powell and co would do over at the Fed retiring this term transitory. So that did have some uh, movement on the markets. Just worth noting, you did see a better performance of the banking stocks finally in trade yesterday. Jeff.
0: Uh, thanks very much, Karen. Uh, so, we're talking about the debt ceiling again. The Democrat controlled U.S. Senate has passed a bill to fund the federal government until mid February, averting a shutdown. Without the measure, funding was set to run dry at midnight t- today. The bill now heads to the president's desk. Congress still has to address the issue of the debt ceiling, which the US government could hit on the 15th of December. US initial jobless claims rose slightly to 222,000 last week, but the figure was lower than economists expected. It's higher than the previous week's 194,000 though, and uh, it is the lowest figure since, uh, or that was the lowest figure since 1969. Continuing claims dropped below 2 million, for the first time since March 2020, in the early days of the pandemic. The weekly figures imply a robust recovery in the US labour market, but we'll get more insight on that, obviously, later today, with the release of the monthly non-farms payrolls report. Economists are looking for that number to continue to grow, with unemployment falling to 4.5% from 4.6% in October. Wage growth is also expected to accelerate slightly, supporting the Fed's case for tighter monetary policy. Don't miss a colleague's interview with the U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. That's first on CNBC Today at 15.35 Central European Time.
2: Well, good morning, Jeff and Karen. Yes, oil prices, well, trading higher. We've got Brent trading 7049 at the moment after OPEC Plus said it will be ready to step in if the Omicron variant poses a bigger threat. Um, But what do they mean by that? If they step in, if Omicron's a bigger threat, does that mean that they take more supply off the table because they're worried about what that would mean to the price of oil i think it probably does uh, the oil producer group surprised the market and agreed to push ahead with its previously agreed policy of hiking around 400,000 barrels per day in January. Now, Karen, Jeff, there's many aspects to this. I know the one that um, our friends over at the Financial Times have picked up is that actually a huge amount of lobbying and pressure from the White House and the administration there, uh, and perhaps a a hint of rapprochement between Riyadh and Washington, uh, was partially responsible to this. But I I think it's also a little bit more about just pure self-interest. And no one's ever accused OPEC or OPEC Plus of not of acting in the... Uh, in self-interest, despite the fact that they've always, for as long as I've known the group for the last 20, 30 years, have been talking about a fair price for producers and consumers. And I think given the oscillation we've seen in markets, the concerns about Omicron and other variants and what have you, and what we've seen out of Africa as well, I think that's got them worrying that despite the fact that they want a minimum and I say a minimum of an eight handle uh, on the oil price, i.e. $80 above plus. What we have seen uh, is real oscillation concern about the global economy and where we are. And as such, putting those extra barrels on the table, although that douses and continues to put pressure on the oil price in the short to medium term, I think they're very worried about overcooking things uh, in terms of the supply equation, despite the fact that, of course, uh, they much prefer a much bigger handle we saw I'm sure you're watching as well. Brent trading with a, a high 60s handle uh, at its lows of the last 24 hours as well. Now it's crept up to just over $70 a hour. That isn't where they want it to be. They want it to be a lot higher than that. But I think they, like everyone else, are noticing what's going on with the world economy and also perhaps listening uh, to the United States.
0: It looks like a rational and a sensible decision, doesn't it, Steve, Um, given that we have a real deficit of solid information about what this variant is ultimately going to mean for growth trends at this stage. And um, we've got a couple of really solid pieces of uh, jobs data going into the big on-farm payroll number today. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about some Bank of America numbers around retail sales over the... Um, Thanksgiving period, and they look strong as well. So, as you look at the underlying economic currents here, and even Europe's PMI series have not been bad, and we'll look for confirmation in the services data today on that series that actually things are steadily progressing, uh, even if they're not dramatically improving. I mean, and all of that. Uh, obviously suggests at the moment that the underlying uh, rebound trends do look in reasonable shape. But we're learning, I think, very quickly Omicron has been around a lot longer than we thought. Uh, It's just the fact that maybe we were all watching Delta and not paying too much attention to the new variants.
1: It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? We've got this potentially very big market-moving news, but everybody's just ignoring it at this point, waiting for more information. You've had the Fed step aside and say, we're now laser-focused effectively on inflation. It's not transitory anymore. We're we're looking at these pricing pressures. And you've got OPEC saying, well, okay, well, we'll just carry on as well with our same production plans. We're not going to change anything either. So what do you do as as a market? market participant here? Do you get ahead of the story? Do you put trades on because uh, perhaps there's a catch-up trade around the corner when we get more information? Or are you forced to do exactly the same thing, sit back and wait for other policy makers and world leaders to come up with some sort of decision making as the scientists produce information? It's it's a strange period of time, isn't it, to, to be waiting to react to markets? Steve.
2: Let's get to Martin Marantz, who is the head of European Oil and Gas Equity Research at Morgan Stanley. Martin, I always enjoy our conversations and I always enjoy your research as well. But you seem to have got this one a little bit wrong, if you don't mind me saying. You thought that OPEC would shelve its target to increase output in January. They've gone ahead with it. Why the divergence there? And very good morning to you, sir.
3: Yeah, good morning. Um- No, you're right. Our call was for OPEC to pause the uh, the scheduled increase of 400,000 barrels a day for the month of January uh, in anticipation of more clarity um, over uh, the Omicron variant. Uh, But they decided not to do that. Um, Quite often in OPEC, there can be a bit of inertia in the sense that um, it's hard to reach agreements. um, And changing an agreement always requires um, uh, unanimous uh, uh, support. So perhaps. We underestimated perhaps um, a bit sort of the inertia uh, in in, in the system. Sticking to the current position is always the easiest. OPEC did leave the door open fully um, to react uh, 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 very quickly. So in that sense, they're still signaling um, that they are, you know, on the ball, um, monitoring market conditions um, uh, very closely. Uh, But yeah, instead um, instead of the polls that we forecast, uh, we are having OPEC continuing what, uh, what they said they would do uh, with keeping an eye on the bull, so to say.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a brilliant comment, Martin. I haven't seen it anywhere else, the inertia and decision-making. We see that in many boardrooms, don't we? So look, there are many oil prices out there. Uh, there is the oil price, of course, the spot price. There is the futures curve, which indicates a lot about the future demand. Uh, there is the price that you and I have talked about, which is the balancing of budgets for a lot of these, and the price where you overcook the world economy. Is it that the price that the oil majors want, which is somewhere up here uh, for balancing their budgets, and actually the price which is going to overcook the economy given concerns about Omicron and all others, they're just such a divergence at the moment. Are they happy for the short term to keep it around these levels, even though longer term we know they want it 10 to 15 bucks higher?
3: Yeah, I think, that in, the, I think in the long run they, they want it a little higher. And I think ultimately um, we will get there in the sense that sort of OPEC will support its trajectory higher. Uh, partly because the CapEx response uh, so, uh, so far has been so minimal. Uh, so um, I think what OPEC will over time sort of try to, try to do is sort of nudge it a little higher to the point where, well, where more investment is forthcoming. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case yet. That wasn't clearly the case over the last couple of months when we had oil well into the 80s. Uh, and I think ultimately um OPEC also wants to you know sort of extract as much economic rent out of their resources uh, as they can and i think they'll they'll try to find that edge where yeah, where they get a high price, but the, but the, but the demand destruction doesn't kick in. And the, the non-OPEC supply response sort of isn't, isn't quite there yet. And I think that price lies above uh, where we are now. That said, though, uh, in the short run, um, I think one of the things that yesterday also revealed is that perhaps in the end, OPEC is a little bit more sensitive to pressures from the U.S. government, who clearly um, try to... Uh, put pressure on OPEC over the last uh, couple of weeks to, well, to cool down the oil market a bit. It didn't look like OPEC was so sensitive to that. But perhaps yesterday's decision could also be seen uh, in the light of that pressure, perhaps having a little bit more effect um, sort of in the short run.
0: So let's take that forward. And let me ask you about um, how you then think about how you invest in the um, oil uh, services businesses here, because there is a world of difference between OPEX and CAPEX. And at the moment, as you're pointing out here, price is not doing what it traditionally does, which is stimulating fresh rigs and additional um, demand from services businesses at this stage. So is it, as you look at your in equity investment right now, do you just continue to buy the, the, the producers rather than the services companies or do you buy the services companies because they haven't kept up with the integrated oil businesses or the producers?
3: Yeah, no, that is, that is one of the critical questions that we spend quite a lot of time sort of thinking about. Um, the, the, the sort of flipping po- the tipping point where you go from one to the other um, it, it might well lie within a sort of investable sort of time horizon, as in over the next one, two, sort of three years or so. For now, though, um, look, um, I think it's relatively straightforward. The producers are generating such enormous amounts of free cash flow, and, not, and you don't need $85 uh, for that, which we had recently. Even at today's oil prices, at $70 a barrel, um, there, is, there is substantial room in the producers to raise dividends, um, to de-gear their balance sheets very, very quickly, do more buybacks. Um, and um, for a sector that um, a lot of, uh, particularly generalist investors, have struggled to warm up to already uh, for some time, that is um, a, a slightly more straightforward uh, proposition. I think there's a lot of room um, left in simply the producers. But if the cycle really plays out the way you know, we foresee it, uh, it's for a, you know, a strengthening oil market, for the producers to do well, there, at some point it is likely that there will be a capex response. Um, the thing with the offered service sector is uh, that that has been a somewhat challenged sector for a long time now. So uh, these equities discount a relatively a poor long-term outlook. Precisely when the tipping point is you go where you switch from the producers to the service names is a little hard to call. I don't think we're quite there yet, uh, but this could well be a very profitable opportunity at some point over the next, say, year or two or three
1: Martin, it's Karen jumping in. I wanted to explore the uh, impact of OPEC Plus's decision for markets because there are a lot of linked markets here. Effectively, you've got the the oil price story that could have second-round inflation effects for a lot of economies, and we know that inflation is now very much on the agenda for central banks like the Fed. By taking the uh, decision and uh, taking some of the shine off oil prices in recent weeks, does it help the narrative when it comes to interest rates, which, of course, has also been driving up the dollar on markets?
3: Um yeah um uh, that's that's an excellent question um look the, the the oil price is such a sort of broad indicator of everything around sort of COVID, mobility transportation uh the oil market is really the, the most visible uh signal of that so quite often it gets a little sort of over over interpreted um it, 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 the, the 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 sort of inflation uh, narrative and the oil price have also been very very closely linked. Um, so to the extent that some heat has been taken out of the oil market, uh, that, I think that does make it um, easier in terms of um, the, the inflation story uh, and also in terms, of, uh, in terms of the rate story.
0: Um, Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Good to see you. Martin Ratz uh, from Morgan Stanley walking us through the latest on the oil picture. Still to come on the program, Didi announces it'll delist from the United States and move its shares to Asia amid increased regulatory pressure from both the U.S. and Chinese authorities. We'll tell you exactly why it's happening when we come back.
2: Right, we've got a lot of corporate news to get through for you. So let's start off. The largest semiconductor chip merger in history is in jeopardy, actually, after U.S. regulators moved to block NVIDIA's planned acquisition of the British chip firm Arm. The Federal Trade Commission cited antitrust concerns, saying the proposed deal would give NVIDIA control of computing technology that its competitors rely on. Uh, The FTC move comes a month after British regulators said they would launch a similar in-depth probe of the deal. NVIDIA shares actually closed 2% higher. Elsewhere, Mr. Musk is offloading more Tesla shares. Regulatory filings show the CEO has unwound another 934,000 shares in the EV maker, worth around $1 billion, in order to meet his tax obligations. Uh, Since November 8th, Musk has sold a total of 10.1 million shares, worth $10.9 billion. Uh, Tesla shares closed lower by 1%. Elsewhere, Southeast Asia's super app Grab skidded in its Wall Street debut. The ride hailing and delivery company opened 19% higher before it reversed course. It was the biggest US listing for a Southeast Asian firm following a record-breaking $40 billion SPAC merger with Altimeter Group uh, Growth Corp. Well, the ride-hailing giant is still posting losses, funny that, uh, but the CEO, Anthony Tan, told CNBC he's confident in the company's path to profitability. I bet he is.
5: We don't view growth and profitability as mutually exclusive, Andrew. We operate in a market with a large market opportunity and low penetration across our verticals. So you just look at food penetration is 12 percent in Southeast Asia versus 21 percent in China. Mobility is 3% in in this region versus 12% in China. And we've been able to build a great track record of achieving significant top line growth while taking massive steps towards profitability. So our mobility margins, for example, 12% as of Q3 2021. These are industry leading and have been relatively stable for several quarters. Our deliveries is only a three year old business, but already break even in a majority of our markets. And we'll apply a similar approach to cost optimization to deliveries as we have done in mobility. So we do believe we have a cost leadership advantage, as I talked about, as a super app. uh, And and more importantly, we're offering an ecosystem of highly complementary services that address high-frequency everyday needs all through one app. So we're scaling and we're growing and investing in this growth while making sure we're exercising cost discipline. So I'm confident we have this clear path to profitability because of the super app model. And what's that timing look like to you? well we 're just going to keep executing upon this long term strategy, and we 're seeing as I said, mobility margins are strong uh, we 're seeing in our know, deliveries business break even just after three years in majority of our markets
0: uh, grabs Anthony Tan there foreign public companies listed in the United States may be delisted if their auditors don 't comply with information requests, according to a new rule adopted by the SEC. The amendment passed in two thousand and twenty after Chinese regulators repeatedly denied audit requests. The SEC will now be able to ban companies from trading and delist them if audit requests are evaded for three years. Well, Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi says it will now delist from the New York Stock Exchange and move to Hong Kong instead. Shares fell last week amid reports Chinese regulators we're pressuring executives to delist from the U.S. over data security concerns. Let's get out to uh, Sam for more on this. So, so, Sam, what we have here then is, is ultimately a state-directed outcome, do we, for, for DD, It takes its listing to Hong Kong because that's where Beijing wants it to be based.
4: Yeah, Jeff, good morning to you. That's certainly the suggestion that we're getting from analysts that this is perhaps part of China's plan. I mean, this is a pretty dramatic turn of events, but not entirely surprising because, of course, there had been some suggestion that Didi had been warned by the Chinese regulators not to go ahead with this IPO over data security concerns, but it went ahead with it anyway. And so, I mean, if you look at the stocks performance since July, it's been pretty much downhill. In terms of a timeline, it did become a regulatory target as part of Beijing's much broader crackdown on big tech. It was then subject to this cybersecurity uh, investigation just days after it IPO'd over data security. Uh, we then saw Chinese app stores being told uh, not to offer Didi's apps uh, over some of this uh, personal data and some of the concerns around that. So it's been a pretty wild ride, you could say, for Didi. And there has been some suggestion that maybe a bit of a bumpy road towards Hong Kong as well as it will have to comply with uh, the Hong Kong uh, tough regulations around IPO. There, But uh, certainly uh, reports last week had suggested that Chinese regulators were wanting Didi to come up with a plan to delist, uh, certainly from the US. And so uh, we may now see a resurgence of Chinese companies uh, coming back to home to list. We have already seen this theme happening in the face of uh, US pressure. Uh, but as I said, one analyst spoke, we spoke to this morning suggests that uh, China is making it pretty clear now uh, that it perhaps doesn't want these Chinese tech companies to be listed over in the US. Uh, mainly because, you know, they will be subject to the jurisdiction uh, under these US regulators. And so there has been some suggestion now that Chinese regulators are perhaps very uncomfortable with with this and would prefer these companies to list uh, over on the mainland and in Hong Kong. So this could certainly impact the direction that some of these companies plan to go uh, when they do IPO. But as you said before, these companies are sort of stuck in between a rock and a hard place now because not only do you have uh, the pressure coming from the Chinese, side but also the US side as well with the SEC now requiring these companies uh, to really be more upfront about their auditing inspections as uh, the Chinese regulators have uh, long sort of uh, been reluctant to allow these foreign regulators to look into the books of these Chinese companies so there has been some suggestion uh, now that you know the US isn't wanting these Chinese tech companies to list because of some of these concerns China doesn't either so perhaps they do agree on one thing but perhaps over some different reasons Karen.
1: As, um, can we talk about the macro here as well where we've got you because we're just looking at the PMI the services side and well it's still expanding it has come down from the high levels in October we had 53.8 now at 52.1 how much of this is still down to COVID?
4: Yeah, look, I mean, this particular data point, Karen, was partly down to the restrictions that we have seen around COVID and some of the small flare-ups, certainly that we did see in the month of November. But it was also partly down to some of these uh, inflationary pressures that particularly the smaller and medium-sized businesses are facing, because of course this survey does look at the smaller companies. If you look at the breakdown, those input costs actually grew for a 17th straight month in a row, actually at the fastest pace since May, as those labor costs and also those higher remor- raw remor- material costs continued to weigh. Uh, New business did grow but actually at the slowest pace since August as these companies still felt the pinch from this zero COVID approach that Beijing is taking. New export orders only rose slightly with the pandemic being put down as the reason for that as well and some companies did say that that soft demand did actually affect some of their pricing power. One bright spot uh, it is important to point out was that uh, these companies continued to hire more workers actually at the fastest pace since May. So that is good news but that was certainly consistent with the official numbers that we got out earlier in the week which did actually so show a bit of a slowdown as well because of some of these curbs around COVID and China uh, is now facing a little bit of a flare-up quite concerning for authorities up in the north of China just reporting 96 new cases yesterday up from 73 the day before Uh, but there are some expectations certainly as we saw in this survey that some companies are expecting uh, you know these authorities globally to keep this pandemic under control and for demand certainly to pick up I think the comments from the senior economists as part of this survey were actually quite interesting and quite telling, once again saying that policymakers should still focus on the SMEs and also should take inflation seriously. So that is certainly uh, the warning coming from economists to the policymakers in China.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com.
1: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.